what does the word laser bring to mind? For me, it's an iconic spy movie. The characters shimmy under thousands of red light beams, wearing tuxedos and gowns. They're probably at an extremely elite event of some sort, too. Oh yeah, and if they touch the red light beams, they die. But in actuality, lasers aren't just this glamorized phenomenon we've seen in Get Smart, Mission Impossible, and Star Wars. In New York City, you can get up close and personal with lasers with the help of a man known as Dr. Laser. He isn't like other doctors. Dr. Laser is not going to fix your broken bones with powerful rays. What he is going to do is show you around the holographic studios, his laboratory for creating three-dimensional images on East 26th Street in Manhattan. Hi, I'm George Bodarki, and this is Cityscape. Dr. Laser combines art and technology to produce captivating installations. He showed me around his studio and introduced me to his life of holography. Hi, I'm Jason Arthur Sapan. I am a holographer. I make three-dimensional images. I work with lasers. Uh, I am the founder of the Holographic Studios on East 26th Street here in Manhattan. You are known as Dr. Laser, correct? Indeed I am. I've been known that since the mid-1970s. So how did you get involved in holography? Well, my backstory is a little different. My father was an electrical engineer, and after World War II, he was working for a division of the old Bell System, AT&T, and he was sort of picked out as a promising technician working in the audio specter. And he encountered a guy who was looking to have somebody independently build displays for Bell Laboratories, which at the time was the preeminent incubator of technology. And he just fell into the right job at the right time, so they set him up, and it was um, his own company, but they farmed job after job after job to him. So even though it was independent, let's say it was dependent, and they would invent a transistor, they'd give it to him. I still have one of those early transistors in a ring box at home, a handmade transistor. When they invented uh, the gas laser, they gave him a tube and asked him to build the power for it. It was so early in the days of lasers that the word laser was not yet accepted, and the label on the device is optical maser, because maser was microwave, laser is light. Uh, but they were doing it because they were of course interested in pure science, but they really cared mostly about telecommunication and here's a new modality to send more phone calls over a little beam of light than wires. Anyway, he landed up doing things like building um, World's Fair exhibits for AT&T uh, at the 1964-65 New York World's Fair he actually uh, built their ground floor exhibit space with things like picture phones and tic-tac-toe machines and all these advanced technologies, um, which sort of led me into not realizing that I was living a very unique existence. Um, so as a kid, you weren't catching on to that just yet. This was your everyday life. I come home, and in the basement, there's Dad's stuff, and I'd play with it just like you'd put on Dad's shoes. I mean, it was it's what was there. 
However, recently, you know, I connected with people from high school on Facebook, and they're going like, oh, my God, I remember when you brought a satellite into school. And I'm like, yeah, that was like the first satellite, Vanguard, before Telstar. And it's like sort of unique to have been, you know, at the very forward edge of technology. So I was just there, unaware of it being different. But, you know, I figured, you know, one guy's dad might have been a fireman. My dad worked with science. So for those unfamiliar with this time period, what era are we talking about? Well, that would be the mid-1960s. In 1968, I got my first job working with holograms. Um, there was an exhibition being put on at the Time Life Building right across from Radio City. And I was the guy who would show the public all these new technologies, lasers, holograms, microwaves, and, um, you know, I hate to admit it, but the job appealed to me at the time as a very young person because the hours began at 11 a.m. So <laughs> it meant I could sleep late. I got paid more than any of my friends were being paid. I was working across the street from Radio City. It seemed like the perfect job. I didn't think it would become a career. I was going to say, did you study this technology outside of your dad? Did you study it in school? No, I started off doing electrical engineering undergraduate, and after three years I decided, no, I don't want to be an electrical engineer. Nothing wrong with it, but it wasn't me. Um, and, and then for a while I just felt like most of the kids today, sort of without a north star to guide me. And um, I had a roommate at the time, and he happened to have graduated. He was a couple years older than me, but he had a degree in uh, a master's in electrical engineering and couldn't find work because at that time the Vietnam War was winding down and ending, and engineers were a dime a dozen because the military-industrial complex had pretty much closed shop. So what happened is that he fell back on his high school band, which had broken up, but he had put out a, an LP that played on the FM radio station of the day, which was WNEW. I remember hearing Allison Steele, the Nightbird, introducing his music and thinking, well, that's pretty cool. My roommate definitely is way cooler than me. And um, because he had this background, he called up somebody he knew in music, and they were working in a recording studio that was four blocks from where we lived in Hell's Kitchen. We had this apartment on 48th and 10th, two bedrooms for, I think it was $82 a month. Remember rent control? Yeah, is that crazy? And I gave it up. What an idiot I was. Wow, you gave it up. Unbelievable. I had no idea. You know, it's like uh, I'm the clueless guy, the accidental holographer. So anyway, so Frank lands up working there. Uh, but he's, you know, he comes back. I said, so what are they have you doing at the recording studio? He goes, oh, I'm the gopher. I said, what's that? And he goes, I go for this, I go for that. And I'm like, gopher, I got it. He says, well, it's better than a doofer. And I said, what's that? Do for me, do for him. You know, I'm like, okay, okay, this is a distinction. Anyway, uh, the next thing I know is Frank is recording a live concert, and he's just the guy bringing wires out from the microphones back to the recording truck, which was like a portable studio. 
and something goes wrong with the console and one of the tracks dies in the middle of a live concert at Madison Square Garden, which was a pretty big gig. And no one who is a recording engineer at the time was really an engineer. It was a title. So these guys were mostly musicians who, you know, sort of transferred over to sitting behind the board. But they didn't really know electronics. And Frank's standing there and realizes, like, oh, maybe I could do something. Grabs the front of the board, lifts it up like the hood of a car. And they're all sort of impressed, like, oh, my God, look, it opens up. So Frank looks at it and... um, takes a clip lead, which is a wire with two alligator clips, to sort of jump across it. And he says, yeah, we'll boost it on the remix back in the studio. No one will even know. And the studio owner, Roy, is sitting there, looks up at Frank, and he goes, Frank, you know stuff? And the very next day, Frank was like head of maintenance for the whole studio. And then he needed a gopher. So suddenly I got brought in, and I started off doing ridiculously menial jobs, you know, carrying wires, bringing stuff in, screwing together, you know, some shelving. And then one day they needed acoustical isolation in the hallway, which was really very nice. It was covered the ceiling with old album jacket covers, which only the ones they had recorded. And you're looking around and you're like, oh my God, look, there's Don McLean. There's, you know, it's like, wow, Judy Collins. Anyway, um, I didn't know anything. I really didn't know anything from anything. But it was a gig and it seemed like a lot more fun and the hours were pretty loose and they paid well. So they hand me a pile of these acoustical tiles made out of cork, which were really attractive. I'd never seen anything quite like it. You know, I had paint at home. And they handed me a can of 3M spray adhesive and says, okay, here's what you do. You spray the back of the tile, you press it up on the wall, you do it again until you cover the wall. And I'm like, I think I could do that. So I'm busy and I'm spraying and I'm adhering and I'm spraying. Well, after hours of doing this in a very small, confined area, no one had sort of warned me that inhaling glue could be deleterious to your consciousness. So I'm like hallucinating at this point, but no idea of what's going on because it it was gradual. It had ramped up, and now I was finished, and I'm just sort of sitting there in a daze, and to my right, This big refrigerator door opens, which was the soundproofing door to one of the studios, Studio A. And a guy walks out, and I'm like, oh, my God, he looks like the Beatles, you know? And I'm like, whoa, you know? But I'm pretty buzzed. So it wasn't like I could trust what I was seeing, but he was just going over to the bathroom right across from me. So I'm sitting there staring, and I'm like, wow, what if it is one of the Beatles? I mean, what am I going to talk about? I mean, this is my only opportunity. i got to say something. And Music, politics, I mean, what do I talk about? And the door opens, and it's John Lennon. And I'm looking right at him, which, of course, New Yorkers, we don't make eye contact. That's sort of uncool. But it's too late. I'm the deer in the headlights. And John sees me looking at him, and he walks over to me. So I am totally paralyzed. And it's my big moment, you know, and I've I've definitely ruminated on this moment. And he looks at me and he goes, hi. And I'm sitting down looking up and I go, hi. 
And he walks back into the studio, and I very calmly get up from the bench I was sitting on, walked outside. In those days, they didn't have cell phones. We had phone booths. That's where Superman used to get changed. So I walk into the phone booth. I call my sister long distance very calmly, and then she gets on the phone, and I go, I just met John Lennon! Oh, my God! You know? So I'm freaking out. I get off the phone, and now I've had oxygen. You know, I've gotten out of this confined, you know, dangerous, you know, toxic EPA site. And I come back inside, and I'm like, whoa, that was pretty intense. And I sit down just to sort of get my bearings, and the engineer working in the studio sticks his head out the door and looks around. He goes, hey, Jason, is anyone else working here? And I'm thinking, like, oh, my God, Danny, who looked like Don Johnson, who used to be on this show called Miami Vice, if you're younger, Django with a D. And he comes and he looks, and I'm thinking to myself, oh, my God, I've met John Lennon, and Danny knows my name. Whoa, this is the coolest day I've ever had. And, uh, you know, and I said, no, Danny, uh, it's just me here right now. And he goes, oh, are you working? And now I'm trying to think, like, do I say yes or no? You know, if I say yes, well, that might be bad. But if I say no, it precludes me from any opportunity here. So I said no. And he says, okay, come here. I need a hand. And I'm thinking, like, oh, this is so great. I'm going to get to work with Danny. But now I've stopped realizing that this isn't just random acts. This is all one big continuum. And as I walk into the room, it's myself, Danny, Yoko, and John in like an 8 by 10 room. And I was there like the rest of the day. And I had walked through the rabbit hole. And from that moment on, everything would be different no matter what happened. So I'm looking now at John because like... Well, I'm like a little kid surrounded by, you know, what I consider greatness. And he's eating a takeout deli salad in an aluminum round container. And he sees me staring because I don't know what else to do. I mean, I don't even know what I'm supposed to be doing to help, but I'm there. And uh, his reaction is like, oh, he looks hungry. And he says, oh. You want some salad? And hands me the tray. Now, normally, I don't eat with other people's utensils. But in this case, I made an exception. And um, so I did that for a while. But as cool as it all was, and, you know, I met lots of people. I did live concerts. I mean, I was on the stage at Carnegie Hall standing as close as I am to you with Ray Charles, and uh, oh my God, I could throw out everyone from music, you know, not just from rock, but uh, literally Eugene Ormandy and the Philharmonic, Tammy Wynette, Stevie Wonder, oh my God, I can't even believe how many opportunities this put in front of me, but as much as it was cool, it really wasn't my destiny. It was a cool thing to do, but for someone else. And um, I rediscovered holography and saw a story about it and decided, like, I wonder if anyone would actually be interested in this. It's so cool. Not knowing what to do, I went to the public library and said, how do I find out who to approach to sell, like, a visual technology to? And the librarian said, oh, you need to look through the advertiser's red book. And I'm like, what's that? 
and he pulls it out and I'm looking through it and it has the names of all these agencies at the time, Ted Bates, J. Walter Thompson, art directors, creative directors. So I sit there with a pen on a piece of paper because this was before today's era and I wrote down all these names and addresses and I went back on my old Smith Corona old key typewriter and typed up a letter went to a print store across the street, had it offset copied a hundred times, and signed each letter, and I varied my signature. You know, I'm trying to define myself still. I don't really know who I am. And I send them out, and lo and behold, someone calls me back and says, yeah, it's Harry Zelenko from Zelenko Advertising. I'd like to use one of your holograms, you know? And I'm like, great. So I landed up on my very first approach, getting a gig, and we did a space telephone operator, like on a presto box, for the carpet of the future from American Enka, and it was used at the Merchandise Mart in Chicago, and uh, I think four months went by before my next gig, but it was for Talon Zippers. Um, and, you know, it was one thing after another, and it didn't really matter who the clients were. So were you making these holograms at home? No, I, I set up a lab. I didn't know what I was doing. I mean, I really didn't know what I was doing. I just had textbooks, which directed me towards what seemed like the right approach. And yet, oh, I think it was four or five months where all I was getting was black pieces of film and then one day, my friend comes over, and he says, oh, can I see what you're working on? I go, yeah, I screwed it up. It's a total failure. And he goes, like, okay, you know. And, but he's had a couple of drinks. So, you know, he's two sheets to the wind, and he just picks it up and starts looking. and goes, like, oh, is this a soda can? And I'm like, wait a minute. Oh, my God. <laughs> I've been overexposing these for five months? And from there on, I figured it out. But it was like that Rosetta Stone moment where what was garbled nothingness suddenly became clear. So what's behind creating a hologram? A hologram is different than other 3D. Most 3D depends on our stereoscopic vision, that we have two eyes just like stereo sound. And the two separate displaced left and right images come together in the visual cortex at the back of our brain where it gets stacked up and we see dimension. Well, that's good for a 3D movie and it's why you wear those funny glasses because we're really seeing two separate movies. But a hologram doesn't care about any of that. A hologram is more like when we were kids and we played with Play-Doh. And if you took Play-Doh and you pressed it on something you'd get a three-dimensional impression in it, like a jello mold, like a muffin pan. If we were to take batter and pour it into a muffin pan, well, when you take the pan out of the oven, each one of the cakes are the shape of the cups. So what we're doing is we're bouncing really pure light from a laser off an object because regular light is a mishmash of a million different colors. Whereas a laser is just one, absolutely pure, not just color, but if you could think of music, it would be like the soloist as opposed to the whole orchestra. And because it's so pure, that impression is what we're actually 
photographing. So inside our film, we don't photograph a picture. It's not a lens in a camera, but we're taking a photograph of the impression of light waves, which are incredibly small, maybe half of a millionth of a meter. So our resolution, unlike a pixel in a digital camera, we're talking about light waves. You could see in a hologram using a microscope a single-celled organism, so it's very powerful. So how complex is the process? How long does it take you? How tedious is it? Well, it's not very complex. You know, I mean, that's like saying how complex is photography. It's not really complex. I teach this all the time. I've been teaching now for about 40 years, and, you know, people come in here, and within a couple of hours, they've learned what the story is. They've learned the technique. We go down to the lab. We shoot a hologram they go home with their own three-dimensional image. So, no, it's not that hard. Of course, just like music, you could learn to play a guitar in one lesson. You're not going to get up on a concert stage after one lesson. What are among some of the questions that you get from people when they come in here and they learn how to do it? What are they surprised by most? I think they're surprised at the detail and resolution in the image that they can look all around things, not just at it. In a 3D movie, even though we get 3D, no matter what seat you are in the theater, you're seeing the same 3D. Here, we can literally look over it, around it, under it. It's pretty unique. You have several holograms here on the walls. Yep, the one you're just pointing at, that's a portrait I did of Andy Warhol. He sat for me in 1977. So basically you walk and they move, right? That's absolutely correct, but that doesn't have to be that way. Let's turn around here for a moment. Do you see the girl in the cylinder here in front of you? Watch this. Now she's moving. So the film can also move, just like in an old movie camera or a zoetrope. So there's no one solution and answer in holography. It's many, many, many different options. Each technique is a little different, just like in photography. You know, there's black and white, there's color, there's transparencies, there's newsprint. Holography is yet another, although it's a branch on the tree, it's a pretty big tree. How has holography changed over the years since you've started? Well, I think the knowledge you know, has grown dramatically, the understanding of what we're working with, the films that we're working with, which were initially fairly primitive, have gotten far, far better because we've had time to actually see the things that work best and avoid the mistakes of the earliest uh, attempts at doing it. So has digital technology then helped your industry or has it impacted your industry in certain ways? I would say it augmented it. I don't think it necessarily helped, but it's given us yet one more branch on that tree. When you started doing this, I would imagine people were floored. This was brand new to a lot of people. Yeah, I remember people literally taking their hand and trying to stick it through an image and just, you know... uh, People coming in from um, South America saying it was the evil eye. And and it was pretty amusing because you have to imagine if you were first approaching some tribe in New Zealand like the Maoris in the 1950s with a Polaroid camera showing them their image, 
this must have been the same reaction. You have holograms of a lot of famous people on this wall. I see Phyllis Diller. I see Bill Clinton. Yes, it's true. I've had the opportunity, because of what I do, to meet so many really, really impressive individuals in many, many different fields. And everyone comes in and they talk a little bit about what they do, whether it's Prime Minister Heath of England or George Balanchine with the New York City Ballet. And for a brief moment, you become a person they've shared their vision with. So uh, maybe if I ever went on Jeopardy, I would kill. (laughs) Can you walk us around, show us more of your studio? Oh, absolutely. This is sort of my wall of fame here, where people that we've had come in here and work with us have signed our wall. If you look at the wall, there's Ed Koch, who used to be the mayor for you young kids. How am I doing? He's that guy. They named the bridge after him. Joe Franklin was the first guy who had a talk show, uh, I think starting in the 40s, right up through the end of the 90s, which is amazing. Isaac Asimov, probably one of the most renowned science fiction writers. Uh, Billy Idol, rock star. Uh, Margot Hemingway, not only the granddaughter of Ernest Hemingway, but absolutely a famous actress and model in her own right, Uh, Phil Donahue, yet another talk show host, Um, artist James Terrell, there's Gene Simmons of Kiss, there's Cher. So come with me. Let's go down to the next layer of madness here. Um, This is some of my laser art. Now it isn't holographic, but since I am Dr. Laser, I I feel obligated to do work. People come in from magazines, uh, music videos, corporations, rock shows, and we do laser effects for them because it's just something we have. That incidentally in that picture, that's me in the background. I am the silhouette, that cheapest model I could find. So here's our work area, like where we tinker and build stuff, and um, it's, I think of it a lot like Thomas Edison's shop back in the old days, Menlo Park, New Jersey, where this is like some of my more commercial work. This is one I did for John Hancock Advertising. It's a gold Olympic holographic medal that went on the cover of their annual report for their stockholders. And um, not really having a gold medal, what I did is I borrowed a stainless steel omelet pan and I took their lettering on a piece of glass in front of it and voila, the John Hancock Olympic gold medal hologram and it makes delicious eggs. (laughs) So let us now head into the laser laboratory. This is my dark room. If you're familiar with photography, you remember holography is a branch off of the tree of photography. We're still developing photographic film. So think of a negative in a dark room, except for right now we're working with a red laser. So rather than red safe lights, what you're seeing are green lights. So I'm going to turn the light up a little bit for you. This is not my level. I live like a mole which is, uh, I don't know, I feel like the Morlocks from uh, the old science fiction era. So I'm turning on 
the laser right now. And this room, believe it or not, the walls and the ceiling and the floor, this is my holographic camera. You notice this is the image we were looking at up in the gallery. And what I'm doing is I'm directing laser beams to it, spreading them out to cover the entire object. If it's okay with you, um, I could blow just a little bit of smoke for a moment. So Please you do, see. yeah. I mean, it, it's a disgusting habit, don't get me wrong. <laughs> I am not endorsing, you know, smoking for any reason whatsoever, but damn it, this is science. <laughs> right. Damn it, Jim, I'm just a simple country doctor. Wow, that's amazing. So yeah, so now I'm seeing the laser while you blow smoke into so it. The red laser's appearing. Like some, oh, I don't know, George Clooney heist movie, right, with laser beams. Except for, for me, this is real. Dr. Laser, thank you so much for your time. Well, I hope you've had fun, George. Thank you so much for coming in. Jason Sapan, known as Dr. Laser, has been creating holograms inside his New York City laboratory since the 1970s. More info at holographer.com. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Bodarchy. My thanks to producer Fiona Shea, and thank you so much for listening. <laughs>